You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law, normally with Kyla Lee. Once again, Kyla Lee is not here because uh, she is uh, away at an event and I am here with A.K. Peary, who is another lawyer in our office. Hi, A.K., welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paul. It's uh, nice to be here. And uh, on top of that, we also still have Wrigley, who is a normal member of the podcast because I'm taking care of him while Kyla's away. So Kyla's in Lake Tahoe, where the... uh, Apparently, there was just a big dump of snow and uh, an avalanche and some people died, but really probably great skiing conditions. So we, we will see uh, when she comes back next week. Uh, she's there for some meetings, but there's also some uh, uh, recreational events planned. We'll see whether or not she comes back and tells us about her skiing. Meanwhile, here we are in Vancouver. We had uh, about, what, a centimeter of snow yesterday? Yes, and uh, it really displayed how people drive it. Yeah, <laughs> the roads are the roads are terrible. And of course, uh, you lived in Manitoba for some period of time, so you know how to drive in snow. And uh, I lived 30 years in Edmonton before I moved here, and so it's frustrating to see it. But I looked out the window here of the office today, mm-hmm. and the uh, it looks like our our street seventh is completely covered in snow, yet it is solid salt. Yes, and I it's not white, had white of salt. And I'm thinking to myself, what did it cost? What did it cost to put down that much salt? And in Vancouver, I mean, you know, you can get a dump of rain that washes everything away and all of that salt will be gone in a matter of minutes. And then I think about like, okay, like I live in Vancouver and I don't expect my car to rust. Mm-hmm. I don't want to drive. <laughs> I don't want to drive out on that. Anyway, so I'm driving Kyla's car, which is fine because... I don't have to worry about my car rusting, and the reason I've got her car, the justification, is that uh, I've got her dog, and I don't want dog hair in my car. That's fair. Yeah, I think it's so. Really, so we're going to start this uh, this week with uh, with Vancouver. We got a lot to talk about on the podcast, but there was a uh, interesting thing that took place um, earlier this week on Twelfth and um, Commercial Drive, a uh, Driver was driving, a uh, pedestrian was crossing, apparently uh, uh, jaywalking. They end up in a, uh, 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 maybe yelling at each other or something like that. And the pedestrian pulled out a handgun. Yes. <laughs> and crazy. And shot at the driver. Now, the driver wasn't hurt, but, um, you know, I would have expected this to be such a big story. Uh, when VPD first posted it on Twitter, uh, whoever posted it on Twitter for VPD posted it and misspelled, used the wrong spelling for the word break, for breaking, wrote B-R-E-A-K instead of B-R-A-K-E. And everybody responded to the tweet so stupidly, concerned about the spelling. How could you get this wrong? We all knew what was intended. We all knew what they were saying. How can you get this wrong? They're missing out the most important part is broad daylight. Somebody pulled out a handgun. Somebody's got a handgun in Canada that they are walking around with and shooting it at drivers. That's a point of concern. Yeah. Well, they got the guy. They apparently arrested the person they think was the the uh, 
you know, this is a, a major road in Vancouver where there's all sorts of uh, businesses. Presumably, some of them are going to have some uh, video evidence. But I mean, like, forget the spelling. This is a gun, and it uh, it this surprises me that uh, uh, you know sometimes there's like moral outrage about a gun, and then there's sometimes it just barely seems to you know record on the radar. That is quite funny. Um, I mean, I, I would like to see how this unfolds and what evidence they have against him. Uh, as you said, Paul, uh, there's businesses around there. There's going to be video evidence. There's going to be some bullets that they'll be able to track right back to the gun if they find it on the guy, or there'll be fingerprints on the gun or DNA on the gun or something like that. I mean, they'll put a lot of effort into it because it's a gun. It is, yeah. Um, I'd be more surprised to see what triggered uh, the pedestrian to pull out a gun in a road race in a screaming match. Well, I mean, somebody who's got a gun is usually not like the best person to you get into an argument with them. Uh, funny thing is, uh, Kyla tweeted, you know, just watch the pedestrian community is somehow going to turn this around and make it the driver's fault. And sure enough, like uh, people started attacking her on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, try to blame the driver for the pedestrian who pulled out the gun. So there's been actually a few recent decisions from uh, the provincial court in BC involving guns and vehicles. And AK does a lot of um, civil forfeiture work here in the office. And, uh, you know, it's something that I've, I've handled a few of those files. I'm never really happy handling them because they're outside of my, my zone. Uh, but you've had some pretty good luck with it. Uh, I have, and recently I've seen that how civil forfeiture is being related to driving offenses. Anybody who commits or there is allegations of a driving offense, he, they don't have to get charged, and the government can still seize the property. Yeah. And that would include the car. Yeah. Well, that's dangerous, and it's something that I've seen happen only a couple of times in uh, 24 years that I've been doing this. Um, but I'm seeing it more. It's only a couple of times in the last couple of years now it's starting to present. And so I'm not doing them. You're doing them in the office. I'm glad you're getting some results from it. Let's talk about a couple of these cases where there could have been civil forfeiture, but it doesn't mm -hmm. look like there was. The first one um, was a decision uh, of Judge Phillips sitting in Williams Lake. Um, and this was um, uh Rex and Olavo Castro, a decision that came out November 30th uh, that we haven't discussed on the podcast. And this was uh, kind of an interesting fact scenario. So we've got a police officer who is off duty, Mr. Castro. He's uh, licensed to uh, carry a, a firearm for the purpose of work. He's got the uh, restricted firearms license, which he needs, of course, for the purpose of work. But here he is um, at an event, a... Um, stampede or something like that at Williams Lake um, that is uh, the Williams Lake stampede. Lots of people there. Um, it's been a circumstance there where there's been problems in the past and he ends up in some sort of confrontation with some other people there. He's in his personal vehicle and he's got a loaded Smith & Wesson handgun and it looks like he tries to use it to threaten the other people, although that wasn't prosecuted ultimately in the end. Um, but basically, uh, you know, suggesting, do we have a problem here? And sort of gesturing in a manner that 
could have uh, led to the conclusion that the uh, um, that it was um, used to make the other people back off, and they do, uh, and reported to the police. And this is not his service gun; this is his own gun. Uh, and the police um, respond uh, to this, you know, <laughs> probably knowing who it is, and uh, issue him an IRP. So he must have provided a sample or refused to provide a sample into an approved screening device and either got a fail or got a refusal IRP. No indication of what happened with the IRP. Um, and uh, interestingly, of course, the restriction on the use of the results, uh, if you're not using it, um, you know, if, if you use an approved screening device, a police officer uses it, um, it is... Um, course a section 10b violation only upheld by section one uh and uh it's only it's a warrantless search that is only um uh can only made be made when it's authorized by law so authorized by the criminal code and so the police can form a reasonable uh reasonable and probable grounds to conclude that the individuals got a prohibited blood alcohol concentration on the basis of a fail uh the only other thing that they can do is issue an immediate roadside prohibition so the results of that fail cannot be used to prove that a person's over 80 milligrams in the criminal context, which is, of course, the criminal context. So, so you've got this RCMP officer in this circumstance, and um, that's pretty scary. It is. Um, what is interesting to me is that he was in his personal vehicle carrying his personal handgun. Yeah, and you, you think you set out to get there. Yeah. Right, like you... you put that vehicle you've been drinking although that's not something that the court's going to consider because of it's an asd case and you're out there with your personal vehicle at the stampede with your handgun and not just that sort of using it as a tool to get what you want um and uh frightening like you, you think of shootings and things like that you you wonder in a circumstance like this if the if the person's you know if this is going to be the next uh, the next mass shooting and it's going to happen in Williams Lake. And that is concerning because this happened at an event in Williams Lake at the Stampede event. Yeah, on Canada Day. On Canada Day. And upon arrest, it is uh, worth noting that uh, Mr. Castro started crying and he um, mentioned that he was struggling with PTSD. Now, he does not get arrested right away. He gets apprehended under the Mental Health Act. Yeah. And then he was escorted home after his treatment. Yeah. I don't know that he was treated any differently than anybody else would be in those circumstances. Maybe he was, but, you know, still, uh, he was charged. And, of course, the RCMP is going through their uh, procedure to determine whether or not this is something that, you know, what the repercussions are going to be with respect to his employment. Um, but pretty serious circumstances. Now... After that, you you know, we, this is a sentencing case, right? He's pleading guilty to um, the uh, possessing a restricted weapon in a place other than where it can be possessed, uh, contrary to the Firearms Act um, and the criminal code. Um, so it, it was a lesser offense than he was originally charged with, but it's still a, a guilty plea. And, and it's quite clear that He's got PTSD from his time as a police officer. And this is a fellow who was a sheriff for a number of years, uh, an RCMP officer for a, a few years at this point. And one of the things that we see, and we've discussed 
several times on this podcast. Wrigley, stop barking, please. Wrigley's still wearing a lampshade because he uh, scratched his uh, just under his eye. Um, but one of the uh, things that we've seen with RCMP officers, with police officers uh, generally, is a significant number of them have PTSD as a result of events that have occurred during the course of their employment. And so we expose them to these things, right? You know, and we need them. We do. Well, absolutely. And it makes me question uh, the RCMP's... Uh, do they provide mental health resources to them? Well, they do, but, you know, you're reluctant as an RCMP officer to disclose that because you, at that point, you're probably limiting your future of your career. Hmm. Um, and there is, you know, facilities in, in BC um, for rehab uh, available to RCMP officers. And, uh, you know, I, I know officers that have gone through those uh, programs and they've been very useful. But um, a lot of times the officers don't feel that they're getting the support that they need. And they also feel that if they disclose something, um, you know, it's going to damage their, their career as an officer. And, and you make an interesting point there, um, Paul, regarding disclosing it. Do you think that this is something that we need to talk about more or should the officers be encouraged to disclose it more? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. There's all of these sort of structural things that are, uh, um, disincentives to discussing it, right? Um, and that's a, that's a concern. And I don't know that we have a great way to deal with it. Um, you know, when you're a lawyer, if you've got a substance abuse problem, um, you know, and you get yourself into trouble, you disclose that substance abuse problem and you're going to be dealt with, uh, much, um, <laughs> uh, w more cautiously by the law society. If you're, uh, if you're in most professions and, and you're suffering some mental issue and you get yourself into trouble, then that's when you disclose it. But generally you don't disclose it until you A, get yourself into trouble and B, you're disclosing it because it's a mitigating circumstance, which, you know, conversely, the person who doesn't have a, uh, addiction problem or something like that. Oh my goodness, Wrigley, I got to pause. We're back after a very short Wrigley barking break. Um, the, uh, there is a disincentive there, right? Uh, and, uh, so you don't really disclose it until it's, you're in trouble. And then you try and disclose it as a mitigating factor to explain why you made the decisions that you did, which weren't good decisions. And, um, you know, there's a disincentive to disclosing it beforehand. And it's unfortunate that we get to a circumstance like this. This was a heavy one. So gets to court for the sentencing and, um, and uh, the judge goes through what's called the fallow field test, which is just in the criminal code. <laughs> is it in the person's best interest to get a conditional discharge? Is it in the public interest to get a conditional discharge? Um, you know, balancing those factors basically is what it comes down to. And the judge says the same thing that judges always say. It's always in the person's best interest to get a discharge. Of course, nobody's interest. It's not in anybody's interest to get a criminal record. Um, and I mean, there might be circumstances where you're saying, look, like you're going to go off the rails and I have to give you a criminal record to try and help you keep, you know, fence yourself in. I, I can't, you know, I, I don't think <laughs> I've ever seen that situation where a judge would have taken that position in any case I've dealt with. Uh, but the real difficulty here was whether or not it's in the public interest when you've got somebody who's been a, a sheriff and a police officer and is contributing to society who finds themselves in this situation, um, you know, on the, you know, a person of good character finds themselves in this situation where they could continue to be a peace officer if he gets a discharge, or at least the likelihood would be 
greater of being able to continue as an RCMP officer. Um, and, um, you know, you want to reward people for doing the right thing, right? Like going through, taking the steps they can to address their issue. And he took some steps, although I think it could have been further. Uh, but ultimately in the end, the judge says, no, you know what? This is a significant thing and it's a firearm. Uh, and despite the fact that it would be in that individual's best interest, and there are arguments for it being in the public interest, um, you know, on this, uh, basis of this circumstance in the stampede loaded handgun, um, that, uh, it wouldn't, was not appropriate to, uh, to give him a discharge and ultimately gave him a suspended sentence of probation for a year. Which would give the officer a record. Yeah. Now, if I may, Paul, I, I think this is a great decision. I think this shows that public interest is at the forefront of sentence. Yeah. Well, especially when you look at some of the cases that were cited, and as you're reading it, you're thinking to yourself, is this going to be another cop who gets a um, <laughs> who gets a discharge? A discharge, uh, yeah. You know, we've seen lots of police officers uh, get into trouble over the years. It's always amazing to me that um, we still have this fiction that police officers are always truthful and always doing the, the right thing and that we start with that presumption all the time and then we you know are shocked when they don't which is just ridiculous <laughs> you know they're, they're as as fallible as anybody else our, our whole irp scheme is is operates under the presumption that police officers are par- perfect right uh and here we are you know seeing that they're not uh but i think this yeah i think this enhances public um confidence in the justice system and i i'm you know, as a defense lawyer, I don't like to see somebody who's got a, a what is in essence a disability that he is suffering because he was working in the public interest, then leading to this circumstance. But then when I weigh it against the, as you say, this is a good decision, because when you weigh it against the actual circumstances, you're saying to yourself, you know what, like, I don't want this guy to get a discharge and then something else happened down the road. And that is exactly the point that I was uh, making earlier. Um, as you said, it is in the interest of public. And it was an event where there's public and then there is, you know, he's in his own vehicle, he's carrying his own handgun. And dealing with the RCMP policies, I'm pretty sure the officer lost his job after getting a record. Uh, dealing with the RCMP policies is going to be another form of punishment in itself. And I'm sure the judge was aware of that. Oh, he was aware of it. I mean, he discusses it. So, yeah, um, kind of feel bad for this guy. There's lots of other employment out there. It's never the uh, never the end of the world, but, you know, you get your heart set on. A lot of people go through that process of becoming a sheriff um, to get their, you know, sort of foot in the water and get some experience and then becoming a, an officer. Uh, and it's unfortunate that this uh, looks like the type of thing that sunk his career. Now, we've got another... Um, handgun in vehicle case that we want to talk about that uh, also came out in November. Uh, this is Rex and uh, and Mr. Situ. Uh, and this was a uh, circumstance that we see fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a decision of uh, Judge uh, Arthur Leung sitting in Surrey. Um, and it's a fairly common occurrence. And that is Americans coming to the border having a handgun in their car, not thinking about the fact or not knowing it or forgetting about it or being careless about it and, uh, pulling up at the border and, uh, and then, uh, of course it being found by border people, uh, and they 
can't have it. You can't come to Canada with a handgun. Uh, you just simply can't. And of course, it's uh, uh, people are fairly often charged him <laughs> and end up in court in Surrey for this offense. And this was a, a decision where, again, um, seeking a discharge and ultimately the court uh, did not grant a discharge. Um, this fellow uh, was a uh, is a used car dealer or something along that line, and it was a Mercedes that he doesn't often drive. Uh, he lawfully possessed it in Washington State. He had the permits to possess it in Washington State. I have no idea about where you can store it in Washington State, but it was in the console, and he apparently was not aware of it. And he's an American citizen, but engaged to someone who is a permanent resident in Canada. And so fairly significant consequences for that guy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he's not getting back in Canada now that he's got a criminal conviction for this and a $5,000 fine. And it's a big shocker for Americans because, you know, like it can affect you presumably in other parts of the world when you've got a criminal record from Canada. And there's two agencies involved, so it's quite serious. There's the CBSA involved who have the wider powers of seizure under the Customs Act. And also, I, I would assume the RCMP or the Surrey PD here. Yeah, it would be the RCMP, um, but it's just, I mean, the, it's found at the border, that's right. it, right? Yeah, it's found at the border. They they might, they probably call the RCMP in when they find it um, to deal with it. But uh, yeah, it's a long decision. Um, surprisingly long, seems that it wouldn't be necessary to go through that much. Uh, uh, 88, let me see, 120, I'm still looking at the paragraphs here. So over 120 paragraphs um, for what is a relatively simple circumstance. Uh, but ultimately, again, this was a person of good character who didn't have a criminal record um, and made a mistake. And it was, I mean, the court seemed to admit that it was a mistake, but said we're not forgiving of this mistake uh, when you do it in Canada and you show up at the border with a handgun. I don't know if this is consistent with uh, with other decisions that we've seen out of, uh, of Surrey. I know, you know, this is sort of the position that the government takes is a $5,000 fine. And and the Crown got exactly what they were seeking here. Uh, and it looked like he was trying to argue that uh, it could have been a donation to a uh, to the BC Children's Hospital of $5,000, which would have been quite unusual. And the judge questioned defense counsel on that. Ultimately, in the end, 5000 bucks. So big hit for this person, criminal conviction uh, for... Immigration consequences. Well, yeah. I mean, you're not getting into Canada. Uh, after you've pulled up at the border once with a handgun in your car. That's it. You're not coming in after that. And if you're a PR, since, as you mentioned, he's uh, engaged to somebody in Canada, right? Well, yeah, and she's the PR. And she's the PR. Yeah, so he's he not. was to get a PR because the engagement right, to get married. Well, he can now. Oh, not now. Yeah, not <laughs> now. So, you know, maybe she can go to the States. Um, but uh, they're... they're their uh, life together, is, if it if it does continue, is not going to happen in Canada at this point because he is now criminally inadmissible. Definitely not going to be a smooth sailing. They're going to be stopped at the border, have to go through the waivers. It's a whole different animal. Now, both of these cases could have been civil forfeiture. Both of these cases, um, you know, you've got a unlawful, uh, an offense that's committed, a criminal offense that's committed uh, using a vehicle. A vehicle is a significant part of it and uh, they could have seized the vehicles in both of these cases 
Why do you think we're seeing these more vehicle seizures, not in these cases, but in just the last little while? Like, what do you think is triggering this? And I have no information here, Paul, before I answer that, uh, that if the vehicles were in fact seized in the police officer's case or not, the case um, where Mr. Castro, yeah. uh, Mr. Castro, if his vehicle was seized or not. Well, but usually it would say, because defense counsel is going to say, look, he lost his car. On top of this, he lost his vehicle. He lost, you know. So I would assume that neither one of them was civil forfeiture. Uh, uh, which is very surprising to me because recently the cases I've seen, I've seen vehicles being seized for something as simple as a motor vehicle act office. Failure to stop for the police. Yeah. And the vehicle is referred to civil forfeiture and there's a significant delay, which is a matter of concern. And I believe that this should be talked about more between the seizure and the referral to the civil forfeiture office. So it's basically, it's like, it's like, extrajudicial punishment because there isn't the same pressure for a timeline. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. There, there, there is. A, a person is penalized under the Motor Vehicle Act or the criminal code, and then they lose their property too. We've talked about the slippery slope of civil forfeiture uh, before and our ongoing concerns. And this is like the ongoing concern of it, right? That it's so easy to be abused. Um, years ago, I was in traffic court and there was a... Uh, uh, police officer I overheard talking on the phone to another officer and he said yeah no we don't have any evidence but I still want to civil forfeiture it uh, we're still going to hang on to it and civil forfeiture it. I don't know what he was talking about um, but like telling them that he has no evidence but they still want to seize it whatever it was um, is a concern and this like the suggestion or the worry about abuses for this we've seen it in the states lots of jurisdictions where this has been exposed I worry that now the civil forfeiture has become pretty entrenched in BC that we're seeing emboldened police using it in circumstances where that was not what was sold to the public when that legislation was introduced. Uh, you're right. And also it concerns me that they can see something, uh, forward a report to the Crown for criminal charges, and let's say it is not approved because of lack of evidence, then they can take the route of civil forfeiture. Yeah. And um, and meanwhile, if they take the route of civil forfeiture, they can avoid a lot of uh, criminal code um, procedural requirements that are necessary in order to be able to hang on to that. Which is um, specifically Section 489 or 490. Yeah. Um, and it's a point of concern, as I said. Now, the civil forfeiture is so broad, it states that the police officer or any peace officer can seize anything, any property whatsoever. So it could be a house, it could be cash, it could be a vehicle, as long as there's it's involved or it's an instrument of an unlawful activity. So it could be a criminal code, it could be a motor vehicle act offense, it could be anything. As long as it's unlawful, they can seize it. And there's lack of evidence in the cases that I've uh, dealt with, and we've been successful in getting the property back. Yeah. Well, you've been successful, but, uh, you know, one of these things is going to go to court. So one of the things that we see, and this is for the public, and it's sort of disturbing to know um, that um, the really bad cases don't get to court, right? People have their property seized and we end up with a battle with them and the government lawyers look at it and say, we don't want to be embarrassed by this, having this go to Supreme Court or, you know, this ending up before the court or in the public eye. And so they give up at some point, but the person's already been deprived of that that property, whatever it is, for an extended period of time. For uh, years at, at end. Yeah, and 
and they've had to pay for a lawyer uh, to push back in order to explain to them that this is bad. Uh, and then it doesn't end up going to court. And so the courts get these cases and they're looking at it and saying, oh, this is all, you know, pretty straightforward. And, uh, you know, that, that makes sense. Uh, civil forfeiture. Uh, go ahead. Uh, keep forfeiting, forfeiting these things, because look at these terrible circumstances. Well, those are the bad cases, right? Uh, they, they are. Well, there's two routes that a civil forfeiture office can take. The first is an administrative proceeding, actually. And that is what they choose to do in the first instance. And if you do not dispute it or you do not reply to it, and most people don't, um, and there is a strict deadline of 60, 70 days usually. I haven't seen a deadline more than that. Um, then they refer it to the Supreme Court. And then there is, uh, you know, the whole civil procedure. They send you a notice of civil claim, and then you're applying to it, then you're paying for a lawyer, like you said, and you're deprived of your property for years at end. Yeah. It could be something as serious as your house. Well, if it's a vehicle, it's sitting outside, <laughs> losing its value. Absolutely. And uh, if you drove it on these salty roads just before it was civilly forfeitured, it's sitting, sitting in salt and rusting away. So it's a concern. It's a concern. But that'll be a concern for another podcast because we have to move on to my favorite part of the program, which is the ridiculous, ridiculous driver the pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. Now, it is uh, unfortunate, I guess. Well, we have a theme this week, and it was handguns and civil forfeiture, I guess. We don't always have a theme, but unfortunately, one of the themes that we've had recently has been overpass strikes. Uh, and it is so bad. There's a, uh, uh, a TikTok account called Seabus Memes um, where they made some jokes about it. And I would encourage everybody to go find it because it's so funny. But we have yet another overpass strike in BC. And this one is um, January 11th. Today is the uh, 12th. So it was yesterday. Uh, and there's photos of it. Uh, well, you just have to look for it. Burnaby RCMP investigating another overpass strike. This is Highway 1. Looks at the like the Willingdon uh, exit going uh, east to uh, eastbound. Yeah. And it's semi-trailer. And on the photograph, there's something on the back of the semi-trailer. It's a flat deck. And it looks like two big cylinders of some sort. And one of them has gone under the sign. Doesn't look like there's any damage to uh, anything there. But yet again... Uh, hard to believe that we've had so many overpass strikes. Not the company, uh, what was it, Tohan or what was the? Uh, Tran Transports. Yeah. Um, looks like a different one. Otherwise, that would probably be the most newsworthy part of it. But yes, we started the year. Uh, it's January. I think we've had two overpass strikes since the beginning of the year, uh, despite the fact that the government is. Uh, is uh, made the new legislation harder. It has been made uh, more stricter. Uh, it seems that we still are not uh, um, giving truck drivers tape measures. We're not. And the incident that happened yesterday uh, was during the snowstorm. Yeah. And it happened and in you, everyone. And you could see it. Uh, yeah. During the rush hour. So I feel sorry for whoever was using Highway uh, 1 yesterday. Well, and that was you. Um, I was actually on Highway 91. Oh, there you go. So. Smart. Yeah, but it still took you probably a long time to it get took me five hours to get home, and, and, and the main reason for that was because all of those people had to get off Highway One, absolutely, and to take take your route to get home. Yeah. 
Anyway, that's the end of the podcast. Uh, join us next week when Kyla Lee will be back from her exciting trip to Lake Tahoe. I'm sure, surely she will give us a bit of a report of the ski conditions there. Uh, tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 